This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 427 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Jason Sortel. Now, Jason is a veteran firefighter and also the author of The Rescuer. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, the trauma he encountered in the profession, and then one of the most healing elements for his journey, which was his faith. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Jason Sortel. Enjoy. So Jason, I want to start by saying thank you so much for reaching out and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Oh man, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Granite Bay, California, just below Lake Tahoe and right above Sacramento. Beautiful. Yeah, Tahoe seems to be one of the most envious places in the world because you can ski and uh, wakeboard all in the same year. Yeah, it's a pretty good place to be. And then uh, you can drive about 80 miles the other direction and go surfing too, which is pretty cool. Perfect. All right. Well, then, as you know, I love to start at the very beginning. I know you've got an interesting, you know, early childhood as well. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, I was born in San Bernardino, California, and I have one sister and my mom and my dad, they divorced when I was about seven or eight years old. And my mom moved 500 miles north uh, to San Francisco, so I stayed in Southern California with my dad. 
And my sister early on um, was actually moved into treatment centers. And to this day, she actually lives in a, a care facility for people with schizophrenia. So I basically grew up as an only child with my dad. And unfortunately, the reason my mom left my dad was because he was a pretty abusive man and dealt with a lot of the demons of his past from having polio and going to the Vietnam War and just struggling through life. So my childhood was pretty tough and lonely, to say the least. Well, if you don't mind, let's explore that a little bit more. And the reason I, I like to do this is as this project has, um, you know, has, has grown, has unraveled, uh, the, the power of childhood trauma on trauma late in life has really, you know, been, the importance of it has really been made very clear. And so, you know, some of our men and women that have found themselves literally either about to take their own lives, maybe even surviving suicide attempts that have been on here, that's always a common denominator. So, Going one generation back, you know, were you ever able to find out what your father was battling? If if it was, you know, horrendous things that he'd seen, or if it was even prior to that, his childhood. You know, trying to piece it all together because knowing like my grandparents seemed totally normal, and we, but in our family, you just couldn't ask the back generation like, what's wrong with my dad? Because when it was just him and I. I never knew what was going on because I was of the my generation where my dad had me was just be seen, don't be heard. And if I was heard, it would bring a lot of problems my way. But looking back into it and piecing it together, I can see, you know, depression. I can see anxiety. I can see PTSD. But his generation, they really didn't have anywhere to maybe slapping people around in all honesty. And I was that kid that got slapped around mentally and emotionally quite a bit. Now, what about your sister? Was she older than you or younger? She was older than me, two years older. And um, we have a slight connection now, but um, her schizophrenia is really tough to deal with. And it got so rough that actually did fast forward. We had to end up adopting her uh, her two children too later in life. So it's a, it definitely runs in the family, that's for sure. Uh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, when you look back, you know, obviously, as you said, your dad w was suffering. It was the be seen, not heard. There was obviously some physical abuse involved. Um, what were some of the darkest moments as you look back now for your childhood? You know, the darkest moments was just, I always felt like I was in a fishbowl looking out into a world of love and not feeling it. So I would go to school and maybe a teacher would give me a project and I would come home and I knew I couldn't ask my dad for help on the project. But if I did, he would yell, God damn it, that's your teacher's job to, to teach you, not my job. And it just didn't end well for me. Then I would go to school and the teacher would berate, berate me and be like, why aren't your parents helping you do this? Da, da, da. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm sitting down in detention because I didn't get my work done and they would scream and yell at me. Go, go, you can go to the library. You have resources. Well, the library is three miles from my house, you know, and I'm a second or third grader or fourth grader. It, it was kind of tough. And so those were the incidences that really hurt because I felt so isolated. And then also because he didn't care about my appearance or the way that I dressed or the way I did things, you know, the other kids would make fun of me. And so just growing up being the outcast really sucked, to be honest with you. Well, and again, this journey that, uh, you know, all these people have come on, there's obviously this, um, 
this diverse scale. I don't mean scale as having a, a top and a bottom. It's it's a you know parallel scale. It's a horizontal scale. But trauma can be as with one of mine. You know, a childhood uh, child soldier whose parents were murdered and he was forced to kill in Sierra Leone. Or it could be several of my guests where they were the single child. They were adopted. They were you know whatever it was. And it was as you said, it was the absence of love. And even though the adopted family. He had love in his family, but divorce happened again. Um, that was actually Kevin Brathea, who was one of the people that was saved on the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, but again, it's the absence of love. And then you'd factor in, you know, the, the, the wealth disparity, the perceived, um, low self-worth because of the clothes. And I even had that. And I actually was very lucky to go to a private elementary school. But we were the poor kids in that elementary school. So the quality of my education wasn't bad, but we felt like shit the whole time because we were made fun of and we were wearing secondhand clothes. And, you know, so it was, it was a very bizarre thing because we had no reason to even feel quote unquote poor because we were, we were very rich in love and we lived on a farm. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's amazing some of these elements in our childhood that, you know, you'd look back and go, Oh, you weren't in a house fire. Oh, you weren't in this. So you've got no reason to feel that way. Well, absolute rubbish you absolutely have the reason to feel because each one of us reacts to those traumas differently pain is pain man you know at the end of the day and even done a physical pain if i kick you in your shin or you kick me in mine we may react outward differently with dealing with it but at the end of the day it freaking hurts man and and emotional and abuse of pain and everything that you have inside of you it hurts and how it manifests and comes out with and how you deal with it. I've learned over the years. It's just so different. But when we strip it all away, pain is there and it just sucks, man. And to say that one person's pain is worse or or not as bad as another's, that drives me nuts, man. I, I listen to people and they say, I hurt. I can't stand it when I hear the other person. Oh, I know what you're going through. It's like, just shut up. No, you you don't know what they're going through just because you have some pain inside you. Listen to them and and absorb it and help them walk through it, man. So I really appreciate the way that you uh, describe that and uh, work with people too. It's so awesome, man. Beautiful. Well, the the one of the observations again I have is if if we had good parents, if we had good teachers, you know, we would literally change the world. And what's so sad is when you have an absence of parenting, you know, or a very, very diminished level of parenting, and then a child isn't able to find a good, a good mentor figure, you know, male or female in their school, in their sporting journeys. Um, you know, so I think that's why it's so important as parents to understand that we can stop the cycle of a lot of the bullying and a lot of the negativity in the world. And also as a mentor figure, a coach, a teacher, just a member of the community, that we also are responsible for other children and making sure that we're that pillar for them as well. Right. It's finding the proper balance. Like with us, I, I want my kids to fail because if they don't fail, how are they ever going to learn to pick themselves up? But obviously to a level that is right for their age. You know, I don't treat my 14 year old like a one year old. I don't treat a one year old like a 14 year old. But I think at all levels, you need to learn how to fail, pull away sometimes, watch your kids you know, grow and then readjust, say, okay, well, this is what mommy and daddy learned. And so for me, like, and I know we're going a lot of topic here, but I'm so in agreement on this with our kids. I want my sons to see the way that I treat my wife. I want them to see how much I love her. I want them to see when I screw up 
And I say, yeah, dad messed up, but check this out. This is how I made it right. And I think that's something that we can totally bring in to the next generation, but it's called being vulnerable. And most people don't want to be vulnerable plus, you know, especially tough guys and girls in the fire service, EMS service, military, you know, it's tough sometimes to be vulnerable in these worlds. But I think it's really imperative for the younger generation to show them our vulnerable sides. Absolutely. And, and our failures. I think that's what I love about um, you know, the kids that are involved in, in, for example, a gym setting. So I'm, I'm a CrossFit coach as well. So that's a very good example because it's easier to see suffering in that kind of space than, you know, a, a YMCA or something where it, it does, people don't tend to drive themselves into the ground. But when a child is raised watching their parents working out and then doing the kids classes or, you know, but it's jujitsu, perfect example. And watching their, their dad get tapped out over and over and over again, that, you know, normalizes it. And the same with, with healthy eating. If, if the parents are feeding the kids and, and, and cooking and teaching them about, you know, vegetables and where this food comes from, right. that normalizes healthy eating. So they, as you said, you, you hit the nail on the head. They're watching everything that we do. So we are responsible for how they turn out. I'm in total agreement there. And you, you know, you caught my heart too. And you said jujitsu because uh, both of our younger children are in jujitsu and uh, they absolutely adore it. And all of our workouts are outside out in the backyard because we're blessed to be out here on some property too. So we do everything outside working out. And so I'm in agreement with you. It's so good. Beautiful. Well, that was a kind of tangent at the beginning, but let's get back onto your uh, your timeline. <laughs> um, well, speaking of sporting, so what about you? When you were at the school ages, what were the sports that you liked playing? Um, well, I couldn't play sports is what kind of sucked because in PE, you had to have a uniform. And I, if I went home and I asked my dad for a uniform, it wouldn't end well for me because he didn't want to buy it. He didn't want to hear it. So when I went to school on PE every day, the PE coaches would make fun of me. They actually would say, you need to dress out. If you don't dress out, the whole class is going to do anything. And they would even turn the whole class against me to make fun of me for not having a PE uniform. Well, dude, I wanted to go play sports, but I couldn't. And so the worst thing was I just stood there on the blacktop all day and I watched all the other kids out there playing sports. But because I couldn't afford a uniform or put one on, I didn't get to partake. So honestly, I never really got to play sports when I was growing up because uh, my dad just wanted no part of it. He just wouldn't give me the stuff that I needed to do those types of things. So I totally missed out on sports. But what I ended up doing was skateboarding. So there's my sport right there. I went and started hanging out with all the skaters and uh, um, skating the drain pools in Southern California and uh, getting my sports and exercise in that way. But we were also doing some bad stuff at that time too. <laughs> we'll get into that in a second. But um, again, that that's an opportunity. So you know, the, that faculty of that particular school, if they could see clearly it was an absence of the ability to have a uniform, what a great opportunity to just get, you know, whatever, whatever you have to do, lost and found, whatever, get a uniform together so you can participate. Right. I, I do that. That's what I do now is I don't hold this against people. I actually hold it up as a mirror to my life. And I say, like at the firehouse and we're at a stop, drop and roll thing in West Oakland, knowing that most of the children in my district didn't have a whole lot of money. I would look for that kid that was the outcast standing off to the side and I would approach them, you know, and if someone would have approached me at that age and just handed me a PE uniform, dude, things would have been so much better for me for at least that one hour of my day. But no one ever did that. And it's it's kind of tough. So instead of whining and crying about it, I use it as a way to grow stronger and help other people. 
Beautiful. Well, you mentioned skateboarding. So, you know, where were some of the wayward, wayward areas that you found yourself amongst those godless creatures on skateboards? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what I say is when you don't have any true love within your home, you're going to go outside and chase it out of the house. And so I started skateboarding and running with a crowd of uh, um, dudes in our town that would, I wouldn't call them a gang members, but they all looked like me. They all acted like me. And if we saw people that didn't look or act like us, it would be fun to fight them. And, you know, I never bought into the ideology, but I was like, why are we fighting these guys? You know, and it was just like the fun thing to do. So skateboarding was awesome when I was doing it, but it also because I had no parental control at home or anyone who cared about what I was doing. And once I became a teenager, my dad was happier to see me out of the house than in the house. I actually ran amok. And in the 10th grade is actually when I dropped out of high school and uh, moved on and just uh, was living on the, I wouldn't say I wasn't homeless, but I was couch surfing. I'd spend a day at home, then multiple days at friends' houses, then maybe sleep in a park and do that kind of stuff. So from 10th grade till uh, 12th grade was kind of a tough run there. And that's when I was running with the tough crowd. That's for sure. Now, what about, um, you know, trying to earn money? Because actually one of my uh, bonus boy's friends is in the position where he might not graduate. And in that situation, he ended up moving out of home. You know, there was some, some you know, issues that he didn't feel comfortable with. He actually shares, you know, a house with some other kids. But earning money and putting food in their stomach has become more important at that moment than graduating. I hope he's able to do two simultaneously, but I understand the priority shift. So what were those next couple of years like for you? You know, I wash dishes at restaurants and obviously when you're working at a restaurant, you can find food to eat and um, a bottle of booze to sneak out every once in a while. <laughs> so that's kind of how I would be able to go hang out at a friend's house was maybe show up with a bottle of liquor and sleep on his couch. And then, you know, in the morning have breakfast, hang out and stuff. And um, I would go to my grandparents' house every once in a while. And that was always like my peaceful time was going and hanging out at their house, but they wouldn't let me stay for too long. So I had to leave. And then I would go home to my dad, but his priorities were always his women and other stuff. So I just, you know, my priorities were just surviving, but instead of like, you know, food was always there. I could always find something to eat because I, I worked at the restaurant, but I was just struggling to find people that actually cared about me and loved me. And that's what I was always chasing at that age of my life. Yeah. And again, I mean, I've talked about this over and over again now, but that tribe, you know, humans are tribal species. And if you are a child, you know, kind of aimlessly wandering around, then you, like you said, you're going to latch onto a tribe that takes you, whether it's, you know, you with a skateboarding crew that may not have been terrible, but you know, that was your tribe or whether it is somewhere like, you know, South Central and you latch on to a gang. And the next thing, as you and I know, you, you have a sheep pulled over you at 15 years old. That's exactly it, dude. And, you know, fast forwarding, becoming a fireman of West Oakland, that's why I bonded so well with the young men in our neighborhood was because I, I right away, like, oh, you don't understand. I said, well, can I just tell you a little story? Because our stories are so rich. And that's why I always tell people to share them and say, you know, I, I didn't have a family and I chased it outside of my house. And it, it led me nowhere. You know, they start to listen. I said, if I lived in West Oakland, I'd be running with the same pack of guys you are. South Central, I'd be running with the same pack you are. Obviously, in those neighborhoods, there's a lot more broken systems than where I was in the background I came from. So I'm not, you know, I, I will give certain communities have it a lot rougher. But when we give our stories and kind of show that we do have similar backgrounds and how tough they are, ears open up and people start to listen. And I would always use that to help the young men in my neighborhood as a, when I was a fireman. Absolutely. Well, storytelling is so powerful. Yeah, I agree. 
Well, then, when you were the school age, um, was there a part of you that dreamed of a certain career, a certain profession? It may not have seemed within your grasp at that point, but did you have a dream? I, you know, I did, and I. It wasn't firefighting. It was actually, I thought, the medical field or being a lawyer. I mean, which is totally outlandish for a guy with my education background. But it, those were the two that I I looked at a lot. But once I started getting in trouble and was told, you know, hey, I need to stop running amok, I was able to meet some firefighters and went, wow, I think this is the career I want here. And it totally changed everything around on my career choices. Well, walk me through that then, your, your entry into the fire service and then, and then your entry ultimately into Oakland. Yeah, definitely. So initially I started with the California Conservation Corps, which is you know, we would make trails, pick up garbage on the side of the road and and do that stuff. And we were at a fire camp because, you know, you're a firefighter out here in California. So we get the, the fires in the late summer, fall. And our job was to feed the firefighters and do that and take care of fire camp. Well, I was talking to a firefighter and I was like, what are you doing? He's giving me the overall job because all I saw them was doing was squirting water on grass and weeds and stuff. But then once they started talking about structure fires and paramedic and all that, it just piqued my interest. And so I said, well, what do you got to do to become a firefighter? And he looked at me and he's like, well, first you need your high school diploma. Like, well, I'm out on that job. (laughs) (laughs) So I went back and I got my GED. And back then we had a thing here in California called CDF, the California Department of Forestry, which is now Cal Fire. And a captain immediately hired me right away from the California Conservation Corps. And we it was in Malibu in 1993 is when that happened. We were sitting on one of the major firestorms down there. And I remember talking to my captain. My captain says, you see those L.A. City guys over there? I'm like, yeah, he's all, man, those guys make like 45000 a year. I'm like, what? I'm making four twenty-five an hour. I don't even get paid after midnight. Forget that. I'm going to go be a city fireman. So, so um, I uh, went to paramedic school, EMT school. And during the summers, I would be a CDF fireman. And then on my days off, I'd actually shoot up to Oakland. And after paramedic school, I worked in the city of Oakland as a paramedic so I could start making more money. And right after that is when I got hired in the Oakland Fire Department. And the reason I keep the years kind of unspecific is because in my book, there's a lot of incidences that could be traced. So when people ask for the exact date, sometimes they say, well, it was around, let's think late 90s, early 2000s, you know, so uh, so I can keep everyone safe, including the firefighters and the citizens that stories made my book. Yeah, and I read your kind of forward for that. I've got exactly the same in mind because, again, the worst thing in the world is is reminding someone of the tragedy that happened to their family. It would crush me, bro. And then, yeah, and I saw that in your book and I was like, all right, man, I like that. You know, the same heart of wanting to protect, you know, always carries on. Absolutely. Well, you had CDF. Those are the green jeans. They were affectionately known, I think, from the yeah, we were, ads. <laughs> yep, the green and browns are green and browns. Yep. Um, so tell me about Oakland, you know, their hiring standards, their physical fitness standards. Like, you know, did, did they put you through the grinder and was that maintained oh, as you yeah. got through? It was a tough thing to go through and where, you know, I was always good at taking tests. And back then, you know, I mean, being a young man running the drill tower and doing the physical injury, that's easy. That's that was the simple part. But then I sat down in front of the lady who does the psychological exams and she pulls it all together and she goes, wow, so your parents divorced. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, and then you've gone through these struggles and you dropped out of school. I'm like, uh-huh. And she's going all through my uh, polygraph test. She looks me in the eyes and goes, 
well, basically, Jason, you come from a long line of quitters, don't you? And I truly oh, started snap. laughing. <laughs> oh, dude, I thought it was the, I mean, she was sh- you know, firing shots at me. And I'm like, okay, and no joke. And it was wrong. And if there's any young person trying to get in the fire service, do not do this. <laughs> but I figured I was out. And, you know, I had, I had just barely made it out of my teens. And here I'm sitting in front of her. So I figured I wasted a lot of money flying up to Oakland to talk to this lady. So I looked her in the eyes. And I said, you know what, doctor? You have beautiful eyes. You want to go catch some dinner or something? I straight hit on her, dude. And she said, excuse me? And I figured I was done. So I was always taught, well, if you're going to be done, you might as well be done the best way you can. Well, a couple weeks later, I ended up getting hired. And I remember, and I'm not throwing her name out, but she comes to the drill tower. We're all lined up. And she yells, recruit Sautel. And, you know, being signaled now, it's the worst thing ever. I jump out. She looked at my classmate and goes, you guys follow him, but don't follow his mouth. Get back in line and stuff. So we, we had a bond after that and stuff. So I guess no one no one had ever hit up on the psychologist, but I was him. So Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. Do not do that. It's the worst thing. But mind you, we're talking a long time ago, and I was an, a young man with not a whole lot of direction at the time. So that that's an interesting segue, though. So something that I talk about occasionally, and obviously you will definitely understand this, is... With the journey that you found yourself, you know, there's so many men and women in our profession and associated professions that suffer in silence. You know, and sadly, some of them succumb to to their demons. And yeah. I was fortunate enough and unfortunate, depending on how you look at it, to have worked for four fire departments. I, I was at the East Coast. I went to the West for a bit and then came back to the East. And so that was four hiring pr- processes. So I lied my way through three polygraphs successfully. Um, (laughs) and I say that because it's complete bullshit smoke and mirrors. Let's be honest. It really is. And then, and then the actual psych test as well. Um, you know, the, 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 the thousands of questions. I mean, highly on my first one, I think I'd literally, and I'm not mistaken, I think we did two and a half thousand questions. It was like an all day test. Oh, we had it too. Yeah. So, and my thing is this, you almost got to, you know, that conversation almost got to actually what I'm getting to but obviously it wasn't quite the same model but the money's already being spent by these departments they're paying for these polygraphs they're paying for these psych evals they're not you know it's not helping you in any way shape or form it's checking boxes to say well if jason goes and murders everyone we tested him it's not our fault basically is what it is so my thing is why don't we take that exact same budget so no department can say we don't have the money to do this and instead of doing that you know facade that is a psych test and polygraphs do a solid background check so you know, you know, if the person's good or bad. And then mm-hmm. do a few psych, um, a few counseling sessions in, in the tower, in probation, whatever it is. So you have a chance to offload some of your childhood trauma and you create a relationship with a counselor. So if right. a two years, five years, 10 years into career, you start to head somewhere, if you're not constantly offloading anyway, which would be even healthier, then you have that go-to person. But what we have is all this money poured into checking boxes at the front door and then nothing once you walk through it. James, you nailed it because, you know, think about that. What do we do in the drill tower? That's where the foundation, the fundamentals are ground into us, right? Then it goes and gets shaped. So if we can change the fundamentals and what you're getting at the ground level and build those into your career, I think that's great. And where I'll go with that is in the OFD back when I was there, you were, we just pulled hose through ladders, pulled hose through ladders. They taught us every day was basically how not to die while helping others. That's all we learned. Well, then I go to the firehouse 
And next thing you know, and in Oakland, we're no better, no worse than anyone else. But we do get a lot more house fires than a lot of other cities because it's just an old, tightly packed city with low income and stuff that comes with that. There are usually a lot of fires. Well, I go to my first fatality fire three weeks out of the drill tower and I'm sitting there going, we're overhauling around a dead body. And then we go back to the firehouse. I'm, I'm thinking like, you guys don't think, you think this was weird? We're stepping over a dead body while we're overhauling this room, you know, and doing that. And no one would talk about it. And I remember I brought it up and it was suck it up, kid. Well, because the foundation was set early on to suck it up and deal with it, you know. And, and then you see what happens later is that firehouse drunk who we're all laughing at. Oh, so-and-so guy drunk again. Or no, that's a guy who's in turmoil because he's had to deal with this over and over. Plus his childhood traumas, his family traumas, all that kind of. So I think that's a great idea. If we can start that at the ground level, dude, I would be all in to help a program out like that. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about the, you know, the, the drunk, as it were. We also have the angry guys, angry men and women. And that's something I've seen more because obviously the alcoholism was hidden, usually behind closed doors. But, you know, there's, there's numerous people I can think of now, myself included, when I was going through a divorce that, you know, everyone be like, ooh, what's wrong with you? And then start pushing the buttons instead of now framing it as like, ah, this, this person could be in crisis. We need to do the opposite. We need to be compassionate for them. They're not, you know, necessarily being a dick. They might be hurting. And that's why they're, they're, you know, um, projecting outwardly. Yeah. It's, you know, in our department, it was always, you know, survival of the fittest. Well, for the first 18 months, the new guy can't talk anyways, just shut up. You know, you don't have a voice in Oakland. You don't talk, you know, you sit there. And then once you come off probation, you start learning that it's the survival of the fittest. It's the tough guys. It's the tough girls that make it through and get the best firehouse, the best engine companies, the best truck companies. So you do that. Well, dude, I was the same way. I started lashing out in anger. And like, if you believed in something that I didn't believe in, I would actually start digging at you at it, you know, and start kind of picking at you because it made me feel better to kind of find something else and someone to kind of dig at and stuff. So, yeah, it's easy to get angry. And that's why I quickly earned the name Demon Seed when I was a young fireman. That's for sure. That's kind of ironic and when the story plays out. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> um, so one thing that really struck me, and I think I picked this up actually in one of the uh, the podcasts I listened to that you were in, but you talked about filling the void, the job filled the void. And that's something that I hear a lot, especially I observe, you know, for, for lack of a better term, this is what we know it best as the overtime horse. Okay. So the people that sign up for everything, gobble up anything. Again, that was the label, the two dimensional label. But now as in this kind of new perspective that I have, you have to ask yourself, well, why are you filling it? You justify, Oh, I need to pay for this. I need to pay for this. But is it that, or is it the fact that you don't want to be present and have the, the silence to, address what's really going on in your head so you sign up for everything did you find yourself at the firehouse like deliberately at the firehouse more than you needed to be oh totally man because first off the the pain inside of me and the emptiness inside of me was just so great that i wanted to fill it with anything whether it was even going to to a medical or a fire not that i wanted to see someone else hurt so like oh they're hurt i'm gonna feel better no that's hogwash i never felt like that But when I showed up and I actually got to bring relief to someone, it felt good. But the problem, James, is as soon as we go back to the firehouse, that good feeling went away. And it was like I had a black hole of emptiness inside of me that would chew it up. 
Then when I was off duty, this world told me, I mean, the, the American way, and you guys, I am American through and through, and I love this country, but the American way of, oh, buy a house, you're going to be happy. Oh, buy a car, buy a, you're a fireman, go buy a big truck and a boat, you're going to be happy. Dude, I would work as much overtime as offered, and as a young guy in his, you know, I in his early 20s, I had more money than I needed. I was never rich, but I was never poor. And so I had a beautiful house. I had a beautiful truck. I'd go on dates with chicks, dude, and everything would fall apart because it wouldn't fill the void. There was no happiness. I was trying to, to basically stop an arterial bleed with a little Band-Aid, and it never worked. And the Band-Aid was everything this world said or this country said would make me feel better, and it never did, dude. It actually made it a lot worse. You know, I spent more time at the firehouse, like you said, and... I, I just bought more materialistic things and it, it just didn't work, bro. Not at all. Well, one thing that struck me as well when, when reading the book is, you know, you had that level of compassion. So whatever had happened in your childhood, you seemed like a compassionate firefighter. And I think most of us are. Some, you know, are jaded because of what we just spoke about. Some maybe should never be in the position in the first place. You know, that's another group. Um, but the core of what we do is kindness and compassion. And I think that's why it feels good. That's why we want to run calls. I hate going back and doing paperwork. I, I just keep, keep banging me out. I don't want to do reports. I don't want to do, you know, online training. Just keep sending me the calls. Um, but, yeah. So when, what we're going to talk about, you know, your journey into your faith, it, as you start reading the book early, you see that compassion, you see that kindness, you see the same values that you ended up embracing within Christianity. So talk about that. Talk, tell me about your crew and what it was about those men and women that were compassionate to the point of going above and beyond and, and maybe use the, uh, the, the family in the apartment, um, story to kind of underline that. Yeah, well, you know, first off where I'll go with it is not by choice or anything else. I grew up in a town and everyone in that town looked like me. I'm going to be dead honest with you. There was no people of color whatsoever, not a fault of my own. So check this out. I become a fireman and where is my firehouse? It's five doors down from where the Black Panther Party started. And I'm the only white dude on the crew. So there was a culture shock, amazing culture shock, but the beauty of it is the three guys on my crew, I could ask questions, they could ask me questions, and I got to learn culture. I got to truly learn people by living, by learning, by asking the hard questions and stuff. And, and that helped kind of shape me in to where I was. And yeah, the, the couple of guys that I worked with, they were Christians, and they never preached or taught me or just went it, but they kind of showed me what you're talking about of what was it in me that wanted to help other people? Well, I didn't know it at the time. I just love selflessly serving people. And that's what firefighters, cops, military, anyone who serves, you put yourself aside, meaning you leave your house and you leave your family. And now you become someone who is just a toolbox for human tragedy. If you think about it, a toolbox for caring for people, you'd reach into it and you give them what they need. You selflessly respond. And, and so faith-based or non-faith-based, that's what firefighters do. They just selflessly help others. They show up without judging and they treat. And I believe you were asking me about the apartment. Was that the apartment where it was the young lady that didn't have income? Yeah, with no electricity. Yeah, yeah with no electricity. Well, we showed up there 
And again, I'm so cautious about how I speak of my beloved West Oakland because I don't want to give people the wrong view. But we have a lot of issues that other areas don't have. And they're issues that are caused by some major broken systems, man. And that's a whole podcast in its own. But but with that being said, we showed up with this young lady. She had multiple kids. She was young. She wasn't sick, but she had nowhere to turn. So she called 911 and we show up. And her electricity is off. She has a candle. She's in an apartment building that was built in the 1920s with candles burning and cardboard on the windows and stuff trying to keep loud. And I could just feel how broken she was. And it reminded me of the way I grew up because I never had a bed. I had a mattress on a floor with dirty clothes and blankets. I never got a bed. My first paycheck from the fire department, I bought myself a nice bed because that was what I wanted my whole life was some comfort. Well, I felt like I could feel her because I lived what she lived, obviously different. And all I wanted to do was provide her with some compassion and care. She didn't need a ride to the ambulance. She didn't need CPS. She needed her electricity turned back on. She needed to get some food in her refrigerator. And she needed to be told that someone cared about her. And then we could point her to the resources that she needed to hopefully pull her out of where she's at. But we never showed up and go, oh, well, she got herself there because she has five kids. And da, da, da. No, dude, that's lame. And people like that drive me nuts. Our job as humans is to show up without judging, help where people where they are, and take care of them. And obviously, I'm not talking in a crime-related thing. I'm talking about someone who just finds themselves in a bad situation, man. We got we got to help, bro. And it just was something inside of me that I wanted to do that because I just felt like it was the right thing to do. Yeah, well, it's something that I talk about a lot, which is, of course, is ownership. Everyone, you know, there, there's an element of ownership on our decisions, on, on us having a desire to get out of wherever we are, if it's somewhere, you know, less than favorable. But there's also the environment. And some people grow up in an environment that set them up for failure. And some people do. They, 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 they are the weed that grows through the, you know, the concrete, you know, and it's amazing. But that's despite the system, not because of the system. So you, you touched on the broken issues. So let's talk about that. What through an, through an Oakland firefighter, lens what were some of the issues that you saw and then you know did you ever come across some ideas that maybe would address some of those oh totally man the issues that i saw is i live in an area where i'm outside of oakland because i can't afford a house in oakland that would be in a neighborhood that was working for me and stuff so i lived outside oakland so i would come home and people would say Oh, well, you know what, for, for the poor people, if you teach them to fish, well, then they'll be good. And I go, okay, well, come on down here. Let's teach them to fish. But we're teaching them to fish in unstocked lakes. What fish are they going to go for? We can teach anyone to fish. But when the lake is unstocked, they're still going to go hungry, even though they now have the skill set, man. And Oakland used to be a vibrant community with with automaking, with chemical plants, with all sorts of stuff, man. But those all went away. And what was left is now the Silicon Valley, where if you don't have this total, I have an MBA or a PhD or something like this. Well, you can move Intel into the city of Oakland, but the city of Oakland isn't hiring a young man out of West Oakland who didn't have the opportunity to go to the same schools that other folks went to. And people say, well, he did. And I said, well, let's come back down because you're talking about a guy like me who grew up, who was struggling and no one gave him the resources he needed and stuff. 
And so that's where the issue is, man. We keep saying, well, anyone can do what they want to do and become what they want to be. Well, I say, well, hogwash, because there are some systems that are holding people down and it drives me nuts that people won't recognize it, dude. You know, so it's the, the yeah, teach them to fish. But if the lakes go unstocked, man, you know, that's why I've stayed away from politics and I've stayed away from that. I just try to help people where I can, you know, because in, in Oakland, I've seen a lot of presidents come and go, but I haven't seen any change in my local community. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's what I've talked about a lot too. You know, health isn't politics. You know, security isn't politics. That's, that's the well-being of people. That's a hierarchy of needs. So when people start arguing about, you know, let's say even the, the current pandemic, oh, are you this side or this side? I'm, I don't want anyone to die side, which seems to be squarely in the middle. Yes, you need to wash your hands and, and, you know, lock down if we can stop the spread, but also we need to address obesity and, and the drug epidemic and, you know, the fact that our prisons are growing and growing and growing and growing, you know, and, and all these things. So drug, drug prohibition. I mean, there's so many elements that are in our control that we can address that, that yes, there is ownership involved, but you can't tell a drug addict, hey, stop taking drugs when there's a shit bag on every, every corner selling illicit drugs. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I hear you, man. I'll, okay, so I've been away from the department for years and haven't been doing stuff. But I'll throw it down. Do you know how many homeless guys who've gone through detox that I've bought a beer for? Dude, guess what? People are like, you can't do that. That's now making it. You're helping him. No, this guy's shivering. It's two in the morning. He's going through a hideous detox. I could take him to the hospital. But at the hospital, you know, the nurses are tired and worn out because the systems have just overrid them with what they got to do. So they know they're going to fill this guy with a mill, check his bloods, do a 12 leon, send him back out in the streets. Well, you know what, dude, off duty, if I can buy a guy a beer and, and have a chat with him and get him to stop shaking and feel better. Well, even as a Christian, dude, I truly feel I did something good for that person because I brought them some relief to their pain, bro. Absolutely. Well, and then that's the thing. I mean, like you said, you take someone, a single person to the ER and they have all that workup done. How much does that cost? Imagine right. if you put that same monetary amount into that individual in the first place, proactively, the changes that you can make in your community. Oh, I've always said if if people want to change all sides across all aisles and everything, they're going to have to be quiet. They're going to have to give me a ton of money and I could show you some actually change because, yeah, we can we can go on and on with that, man. But we're on the same page there. And just to be clear, I'm also not an advocate of giving an alcoholic alcohol. But I think you understand where I was going with that story that when you have a Vietnam vet who, you know, is in a sleeping bag, who I, you've responded to multiple of his brothers and sisters over the year that are going to be dead in a couple of weeks to, to try to, you know, rehabilitate them at that time. Sometimes I can't help get them to the rehabilitation center. So those are the folks I was talking about helping. Would I do it with a friend or a brother who was struggling? No, nah, man, I'm getting you over to rehab. Let's go. You know, so I just want to make that very clear to folks that I wasn't, you know, trying to say I'm doing stuff to, to make people sicker. Yeah. But I mean, there's an element as well of seeing that individual. And you, like you said, you're off duty, you know, you're sitting down with someone. But the point is, I've always said this. If it's something that's not an emergency at all, one of our nine nine eleven nine one one abuse, um, you know, calls that we get a lot, most of us in the fire service, I always had this thought that maybe that one moment of compassion, maybe that one act of kindness, was the final straw that broke the camel's back that got someone to turn a corner. Whether it was someone that was, you know, um, selling their body, whether they were living under a bridge, whatever it was, maybe that was the one conversation that finally made a difference. But if you don't have that conversation, you can never be the one that made the change. 
dude, you nailed it. You know, like in my book, there's a chapter there I talk about where I was at the end of my rope because I just absorbed so much bad stuff from my childhood through the adulthood from responding to so much horrible stuff that I walked up to a church and they turned me away because of the way I was dressed. And that act of being mean to me, meanness that they they threw onto me and the burden they put on me, dude, it, it, I almost ended my life because of that, man. And it was a San Francisco fireman who actually reached out to me and invited me to go to breakfast the morning I was getting ready to kill myself. That saved my life, dude. So you're so right there that here is someone doing something nice. They reach out to you and it turned it around. But I often think, too, sometimes of me as a young firefighter where I woke up at two in the morning and I was pissed to be on that that medical. Right. And I didn't treat the person very well. Well, it crushes me now that I look back upon that because I might have been just like those people that I was reaching out to that turned me away and were mean to me and, and the effect it could have had on them. So that's why I try to look at every situation of how can I do something good for this person, leave them with a sense of peace and a sense of uh, love before I leave the situation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the one symbol I've I've pointed to before in discussions is the yin yang, you know. So that is a firefighter, that is a police officer. You know, you've got that that soft kindness, compassion part, and then obviously you've got the hard part, which is what we have to physically do, what we have to physically see. But if you become just a black circle, and that's it, you're missing the entire reason why you became a responder in the first place, which was that kind, you know, Christ-like, if you want to use that example part of you that then went into that profession. So if you end up losing that 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 initial driver, that initial why, and you just become this kind of Robocop, then that's the time to take a step back and reevaluate because like you said, that's not only horrific for the people that we serve, but also for yourself and you end up destroying yourself too. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, compassion hurts sometimes. I mean, let's be honest, shoving a 14 gauge needle in someone's uh, uh, AC, you know, to, to get them to the trauma center or doing an EJ on them. That's not very pleasant or decompressing a lung with a person that's awake. That's not very pleasant. And sometimes you have to hold them down to give them that. But that's a total different thing. But again, as you were saying, that's staying in the light, that's staying in the good side is I'm trying to bring you compassion. Sometimes it does hurt. But if I'm doing it in a negative way, or I'm doing it to be self servant or to serve me or something. Yeah, dude, that's where the darkness sets in, in my opinion, and we get out of the uh, the light. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, then I guess the next kind of journey is if you want to lead us through your own self discovery. So when in your career did you start struggling and then kind of walk me through you know to to the point where you found yourself at the lowest and then you know the the aha moments that pulled you out yeah i was probably about 10 years into my career because you know i started as a firefighter at the age of 18 and right around 27 28 things just started getting really bad i mean i always carried a little bit of depression from my childhood and some rough stuff from the past but what was weird was I would then go to maybe a fatality fire that had never affected me in the past. But then I started seeing something different, like one gentleman who passed away in a basement fire. We were pushing hard and we we're in the basement of a Victorian trying to get to this guy. And by the time we got in there and stuff, he was gone. But I just remember looking at him on his burnout bed with a few beer cans laying around him and he. I just had this feeling of, man, this dude died alone. And then when I heard the stories of the neighbors about what a great guy he was, but his wife left him years ago. So he just 
been depressed and he would care for the neighborhood, but he just lived in the basement of his house because he never wanted to go upstairs in his house where his wife and kid lived. I felt like that at Islam. When I'd respond to a shooting victim and I saw them taking their final breaths and their eternities are being locked in, things started to change. And yes, there is the faith-based side of it where I was, you know, invited to church. And what, what I always said, in my opinion, prior to becoming a Christian was the Bible to me was a book of lies. Jesus was fake. It was just because I was so full of anger. But for me personally, it became the truth when I started lining it up with what I saw written, what I was feeling, what I seen. But more importantly, the love that was pouring out of the true followers of Jesus that that I started surrounding myself with, things started to change within me. And so to not get preachy on people, I just tell people the reason I wrote about it is it's the story of me coming to faith. And I almost died in a fire and I don't want to steal, do stolen glory, anything like that, because after the fire, I realized I wasn't as close to death as I thought I was. But when I was trapped inside of a building and the, you know, flames, floor to ceiling as an all brick building, I couldn't make my way out. You know, that whole keep pushing, try to, I couldn't. So I had to just curl up and pray that the guys were going to come and get me, um, Dude, when I had that close to death experience, all of a sudden things changed and everything that I'd been reading about, taught about, people had told me about, about my faith just started to make sense, man. And that's that's when I, I became a Christian, you know, and even though I don't use the word Christian as much because Christians sure drive me nuts, that's for sure. I write to 700,000 of them all the time and they can be a tough crowd, that's for sure. So what I say is as a follower of Christ who doesn't like religion but wants to selflessly serve other people, that's where I finally found truth. Instead of me doing things to help me, I was doing things to help others because I'd been called to do it. The whole calling type of thing, you know, and it, that's where I found true peace, bro. That's where uh, I, I found peace, comfort and liberty from my past, if you will. Well, they use the phrase a lot. Uh, There's no atheists in a foxhole. Was it that kind of element where once you were actually faced with your own mortality, that was when you know the truth was kind of presented to you? <laughs> Yeah, it's like everything that I'd heard, because, you know, the gospel message, as we hear, and I'm not going to go into the whole thing, I heard it, and it was mo the most offensive message I ever heard in my life, man. But once the fear of God said into me that I was going to die with, without without being a Christian, without my faith, it, it's like it made sense to me now. It's like, you know, in in my faith, it's you know, truth is actually found in fear at times, you know, because like, whoa, I don't want to end that way and stuff. And when I was in that fire and I came out shooken and I was freaking out, man, I was like, all right, I have the fear in me. I don't want to die faithless. And that's when the, my my conversion kind of happened right there. And I went from being a guy called the demon seed of cussing pastors out of the firehouse and being a jerk and everything to, man, there's more to this. But don't get me wrong. There was also an element of not Christianity, but Christians who pushed me away, you know, because there's that that hardcore Pharisees type folks out there that I, I still can't handle to this day. And, you know, I, I really stand strong against those types of folks. Yeah. And then if this, uh, forgive me if I got this wrong, but the gentleman that reached out to you and took you out for breakfast at San Francisco Firefighter was actually, an, if you're going to label, was an atheist. Yeah. Oh, he still is to this day. Yeah, he, to this day, he doesn't, you know, he, he, him and I respect each other. We love each other. But like plastic firefighters, we poke and prod at each other all the time and mess around. But yes, a church actually turned me away when I was severely broken because I dressed like a California surfer 
And then he actually saw it in my eyes that something was up and he invited me to breakfast and he didn't even know he saved my life until I started writing this book. And he's like, no way. Just like the guys that I've worked with, they didn't know that I was contemplating suicide and I came within seconds of following through on it till I wrote my book and people in my uh, firehouse, they never realized I was struggling because when they asked me about my past, I lied. Oh, I grew up normal, grew up, grew up in San Diego, normal, normal kid, normal. I never gave them anything. Then once I felt compelled to write this book and be a little vulnerable, dude, the phone call started hitting off the charts. I get, you know, over 200 emails a day now from different folks, including tons of firefighters and first responders around the United States who thank me for writing in a vulnerable way because I didn't want to highlight me. I didn't want to highlight the scenes. I wanted to highlight the struggles that I was going through as a firefighter. And that's what resonates with Christians and non-Christians or whatever religion you follow and stuff alike was we all have this feeling of struggle. And I wanted that to come out in the book. Yeah, no, beautiful. And I think what's important about that interaction with your friend from San Francisco is it's not about the label it's about the individual and you know i've i've witnessed I've, i remember years ago uh, one of my co-workers before while i was in the fire academy so it was my day job coming to work the next day in tears and basically she'd been shooed out of a church parking lot because she had the audacity to try and park in the first class parking she was told to yeah. go park in the back you know is that a, a christ-like thing i'm pretty sure jesus wouldn't be shooing people out of a parking lot you know what i mean but then i also know atheists and firefighters that i work with that had a facebook page and all they would do was bash christians the whole time also you know so it's not a, like you said it's not about whatever you subscribe to whatever you believe in it's about if you're just being a good person or if you're being an asshole those are the two separating factors right well that's the thing is you know so for me i came to christ in the bay area well, the funny thing is, I would have people, you know, the classic, well, I know the real you. Everyone loves to throw that, that out. I know the real you. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you, you do and stuff. But the kicker is, I get it because they're on my side. I have a bunch of jerks that, that people, that's all. Well, you Christian, like, yo, 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 don't put me over here. Because then, like you said, I go, well, you atheist. Because I will have, like, on my Facebook page or anywhere, all of a sudden, someone comes out of nowhere. And they're just there to cause problems. You know, I was like, go, I'm not here for that. Go, go away. I don't even interact with that nonsense. You know what I mean? And like you said, it happens on all sides. But what have I been called to do? Just love on people. That's what I've been called to do, man, is love on people. But if you were to ask me the tough questions about my faith, I will say, well, this is what God says. And so I stand firm in that. But I don't shove that on you because how can I if you don't have a belief system that shows you that? You know what I mean? So that's what I say is I stand firm in my faith. But my faith is very clear. I need to love on you and just show you compassion and kindness. And if you ask me the hard questions, well, I'm going to say, well, this is what he says and this is what I, what I believe in the story. You know, so I, I keep it there that way because so many times people won't take a true stance on their faith or their belief or they'll take a stance. They become an angry jerk and they become one sided and one viewed and says, this person not going to heaven, that person not going to heaven. I'm like, shut up, shut your face. <laughs> you know, <I> <laughs> everyone shut up, you know? So that's how I kind of roll James. Yeah, no, I love it. And I've, have you ever heard of um, a gentleman named Wayne Dwyer? 
Oh, it sounds so familiar. Maybe you could uh, help me out. Yeah, so he he's basically, uh, he was very good friends with Deepak Chopra. I guess yeah, the most caricature way of describing him is like a white Deepak Chopra. So okay. very spiritual, you know, one of these people that was just a good person would, would draw from all the different, you know, holy books and scriptures and, you know, from different faiths. But the through line, the common denominator was always you know, gratitude, forgiveness, you know, kindness, compassion. And I remember him talking about, you know, being Christ-like. And I think that's such a powerful um, philosophy because when I think of Jesus, and I was raised, as we, as we discussed, I think before we started recording, I was raised in Church of England, Protestant, you know. Oh, I, you're one of my Protestant brothers, right on, Yes, man. <laughs> yes. So, you know, and yeah. it's not something that that – that stuck to me as far as visiting the church. And, you know, I found it very depressing, to be honest, the English way of worship. Um, but, you know, the, definitely the lesson stuck with me. And I think that's it. When you go back and you literally, as cliche as it is, you know, what would Jesus do? Like, seriously, like if Jesus was outside that church with his long hair and his beard and his flowing clothes, would he say you look too much like a hippie? You can't come in, Jason? Right. Probably not. <laughs> you know, so, but he was out there. Like you said, he was healing everyone. He was kind to everyone, you know, so that is those are the reasons to me why those stories you know the the and i'm not saying stories is fictional i'm just saying the the relayed stories have stuck you know and stood this the the test of time from all these different you know uh lenses whatever uh philosophy or religion people subscribe to the core is that these were just good people and they were they were enriching other people's lives yeah it's just you know, like I say, for me, I've I've been told to do this instead of doing it because I want to do it and it makes me feel better. Do it because I'm making other people feel better. I've been called to do it, you know, make other people feel better and be kind to them. And I think that's just the difference is when we take it off of what we want as opposed to what people need and stuff. I think that's where where it, it feels better, you know. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about you know having that moment in the fire. Um, talk about your you know. Where where did you find yourself at your lowest? Was it actual suicide ideation? Yeah, it was. Um, I literally had my whole suicide plan marked out, my note written. And my plan was, because I do a lot of surfing, I was going to go paddle out as far as I could and then take my life out in the middle of the ocean and go to the bottom because I didn't want a first responder to have to, to find me. My biggest thing was even when I wanted to kill myself, I didn't want a brother or sister to have a a bad memory of me, you know, at their Thanksgiving dinner. And that happened just as it it was just everything came together. Bad call after bad call, horrible feelings, just nightmares. And I just felt like I was being attacked on all levels and stuff. And the, the day I finally decided to do it, it's not like I felt better, but I was just like, I finally going to find an end to all this pain and everything. And what I tell anyone who's listening to this first off, Dude, we want you here. Everyone wants you here. There is some you need to be here. Reach out to people, whether it's a phone number or whether it's a brother says reach out, because that's what saved me was when I was at my bottom, someone reached out to me and they saw how much pain I was in, dude. And my whole life, no one ever reached out to me, dude. It's like no one ever said, how are you? Are you okay? And I think that's a question that we need to ask people. So at that lowest point, man, it was just, I, I had failed relationships. I had struggles with my family. I felt like a failure because one thing people always told me was, Jason, you can be whatever you want to be or do whatever you want to do as long as you work hard enough. 
well, dude, I wanted every person I responded to to not die. I wanted that little girl and that mom that I yanked out of that I grabbed out of the fire to survive. And so I started taking on the burdens of, well, obviously I'm not working hard enough because everyone told me that I could do this and I can't do this. I didn't want to be in pain anymore. And I was working to try to get out of pain. And it, it was just, it was getting horrible, man. And so it was just like the pressures of bad theology, if you will, put on me, plus everything of the evils I witnessed in this world just felt like it entered me, man. And and uh, that's when I was ready to to take my life. And like I said, if it wasn't for my buddy calling me up and saying that we're going to breakfast, I wouldn't be here right now having this conversation with you. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Well, that's what's so powerful about that is, you know, again, just that actual individual in front of that church who does not represent any, you know, faith as a whole. They, that moment of unkindness, of lack of compassion, could have been the final straw that sent you in the way. And then, you know, obviously the compassion that was shown by your friend was the saving moment. So it shows that for any of us, being present, looking around and being the one that's going to help, that's going to reach out the hand, it, you literally could be the last person that person sees and save them or the last person, if you make, you know, if you say something unkind, that basically right. is the last nail in the coffin for that individual. Well, you know, James, I had a phone call as I started to write my book and I, I really didn't want to write it. I was getting, give the publisher the money back. I'm turned away. I'm done because I was just being attacked on all levels, you know, spiritually when I was writing this thing. And I got a call from an FDNY firefighter and that's as far as I'll go because there's so many of them that you couldn't figure out. Was, and he, he looked me up through Facebook and he said, I'm leaving my wife and kids tomorrow morning. I'm going to work, but I'm not going to show up to the firehouse. I'm going to kill myself. And he reached out to me. I was like, oh, man, okay. And, and we talked, man. And three years later, you know, we're, we're best of buddies. And he's cool with me telling the story as long as I don't throw his name out there and stuff. And what I realized is even if you make yourself available, even if you, you know, people reach out for you, because I don't want to put the stress on people who have a friend that they lost and they'll say, oh, I should have. I, I Hold on what I say. They were going to do it regardless is what I say. If someone takes their life, it was regardless. So please don't take that burden upon yourself. But think of making yourself available. So if you don't see it in someone's eyes or in the way they're acting or all the, the signs are there, just let folks know that you're available to talk to. And that's why I tell anyone, if you ever need to get a hold of me, get a hold of me and let's talk 24-7. You know, I'm, I'm here for you. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. Well, I just want to go back to, you know, to your you know, ideation. So you, you're thinking about paddling out and never paddling back. I think it's very important to highlight you know, the thought process prior, because, and I talk about this a lot with anyone who has, has been about to, or, you know, has even, you know, like, um, uh, Kevin Hines, who jumped off the bridge and actually survived. There seems to be a common denominator, a common theme that the, the mind is distorted to the point. And here you are, a career responder, 10 plus years of sleep deprivation, which undoubtedly, you know, scrambles the brain. Um, but that shifts from, if if I do this, other people are going to be hurting. Just like you said, that's why you paddle out there. To um, this is a so people call call suicide a selfish act. You're you're a coward. All this stuff. Well, I you know I I disagree a hundred percent. When you hear the voices, these men and women feel like they are a burden to their family, a burden to their department, whatever it is. And so this act is going to be selfless. They're they're trying to be kind to the people around them. The reality is the opposite, but their mind is so distorted, that's the way they think. Was that the thought process you had? It was. That's why, you know, I even wrote my suicide note 
of I wanted it to be so clear that I didn't give anyone false hope that three years later I'd come walking out of the woods and alive. You know what I mean? And and I'd be there. I wanted them to know I'm not coming back. But I also because, you know, I'll sit there at Thanksgiving or Christmas and think about a horrible you know, someone that took a shotgun to themselves or something that that memory comes back. I didn't want to be that memory of some for someone else. So, yes, I was constantly thinking and I felt horrible and I wanted to let everyone know how sorry I was. And I felt the guilt was just horrible. But for me, what I felt, bro, during leading up to it was it was like evilness was attacking me. dude. I felt like an evilness was just getting its grips around me. And once it got a hold of me, it left. So I was like being tormented all the way up until the day I was ready to do it. And it's not like I had relief, but it was like the evil was like, all right, I got you where I want you now, man. Now I'm going to go move on and attack someone else. And this is my, my true story, my true feeling. I'm not trying to add this wow factor to it and stuff was, you know, for me, it felt like the devil, man, was, it was attacking me. And once he got me, he's like, cool, gotcha. I'm moving on now. And I actually felt like a a sense of peace, but I had major sadness because of what those guys going to leave behind. We're going to have to deal with dude, And it, it actually crushed me pretty bad. Yeah. It's, it's so important to hear that perspective. It really is. And, and kind of analogy I always think of is if, you know, especially prior to be a fireman, obviously our, our fear of heights tends to diminish a little bit, but if you stand on a 10 story building, you know, and you go to the edge, there's an invisible hand, this invisible hand that pushes you back. You know, you can't, it'd be almost impossible to just jump as, as a regular person who isn't battling anything. And the way it, it seems to me is that hand goes from in front of you to behind you when you get to that point of crisis, whether it, where it's pushing you and there's nothing, nothing holding you back. Right. And I saw that because where my book actually starts out was we were on the Bay Bridge and obviously Sarah, the, the Golden Gate Bridge gets a lot more people taking their lives off of it than the Bay Bridge, but the Bay Bridge gets its share too. And when I was on the Bay Bridge, uh, where I was talking to a guy who's getting ready to jump. And again, by no way am I saying he's evil or anything was bad, but I looked in his eyes, dude, and I saw that emptiness. And the way that I describe it, please, I'm going to tread lightly here. Have you ever looked like in Charles Manson's eyes, who is evil? Don't give me, he's evil on earth. But you just see those like that empty eye look, or you see that homeless person or that person who'd been kicked aside so much that they don't make eye contact with you, but you can just feel that emptiness, that hurt, that pain within them. It just radiates out of their eyes, dude. Well, I saw that in this man when I was like, hey, bro, hop back over the rail here as I was talking to him before he jumped. And when he made eye contact with me, I saw that same emptiness. And again, I want to clarify, no evil. He was not evil. But that hand you're talking about was like the emptiness, the sadness, the sorrow, the evilness of this world was the hand that like it pulled him off the bridge, that it wasn't him, that he was screaming out for help and he didn't want to do it. But whatever it was pulled him, you know, figuratively speaking, not that it literally grabbed him, you know, and stuff. And it's, it, it's definitely you hit the nail on the head there, dude. When, when you get to that point, you're you're something else has a hold of you dude and you definitely need someone else to interject and snap you back if they can yeah well i can tell you exactly seeing those eyes i wrote about it in the book um you know with the one 
uh, chapter about addiction. You know, my friend Chad, who uh, you know has been on the show, so I can say his name, even though I kind of um, uh, you know made a different name in the book. But yeah, he was two times in, two times out of an addiction center. Neither time had worked. He was there pounding Bud Lights and had told me, James, you know, I'm going to go try one more time. It doesn't work. That's it. I'm done. And I had that same exact look in his eyes. So I can see, and he's got, you know, like light blue eyes. So I can see it in my mind seared in there now. But yeah, it was pain manifested in pupils would be the best way to describe it to me. Good. Yes. Yes. And I remember reading that too. And it's, so you've seen it. And I think, you know, we all have different goggles that we look through, but we all see the same thing. So for me, I kind of explain it through my quote, scriptural goggles, you know, things that I've seen and stuff. But it's the same thing, dude, regardless of where you come from or what it is. You saw it. I saw it. Other people have seen it. And it's just sad to see someone that that empty and void. And, and I was him because when I went in the mirror, I, I had the same look in my eyes, you know. Beautiful. Well, I'd love to hear about your journey into Christianity. I know it involves a beautiful woman. So uh, <laughs> tell me that story. Yeah. So, um, you know, we had a tough call at the firehouse and I just started dating a young lady that I met at a restaurant and there was something about her. Don't get me wrong. My wife is, wow, she's she's smoking hot, beautiful, but she had that glow, that radiance, something about her that I wanted more of. And so there's just, you know, flowing out of her. And we had a rough call where a young girl got hit by a car. And in, in Oakland, our firehouses, a lot of times people just bang on the front door because our our city blocks are so tight. And this girl runs out to back while we're playing uh, basketball or pickleball or something. And she goes, my sister got hit by a car. So we go down and sure enough, the little six-year-old's lifeless bodies lay in the street. And she, I couldn't do anything for it. I'm in a pair of shorts and T-shirts and the engine rolls up and I'm screaming for the guys to get me the yellow blanket because I could hear her mom screaming as she's running up to the scene. And within 30 seconds, dude, her heart's going to break in real time right in front of me. And I wanted to cover the mangled, her daughter's mangled body. Well, I held her for, gosh, it was about 20 minutes till a chaplain got on scene and mom was there and the community was there. And finally, I hand, you know, put her down and go back to the firehouse. Well, the next morning, I'm going to meet this new girl that I'm dating. And classically, she goes, hey, how is how is your how is your day? How's your day at work? You know, which that's a rough question to ask people in our line of work sometimes because we might drop an atom bomb on you, which I did. I'm like, you know, it's kind of tough. I held a six year old girl who just died and her mom was grieving with her. And I look up and this girl I was dating. She's crying. And all I could think is, all right, great, Jason. Here you go you destroyed another relationship because I was the king of de uh, destroying relationships. Well, she looked to me and she says, well, doesn't it bring you comfort that she's in heaven, you know? And I looked at Christy who has dating. I said, I don't have an answer for you. Well, to speed up the story, she, I could see a look of shock in her eyes and she goes, Hey, tonight when I get off work and I'm done with school, let's meet at a coffee shop. So I want to talk to you. Well, I go, great. Here's this good Christian girl. And she's getting ready to dump me because I say I don't believe in Jesus or heaven. All that. So I run down and I buy a Bible, dude. And I this Bible, it was the King James Version. And I was reading Shakespearean, which I don't read. And there was no Jesus in <laughs> that Bible. And I'm speaking from it. He comes Christian a little bit dude. later in the story. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Genesis <laughs> and Deuteronomy. Like, what is this? Oh, you people are nuts in this thing is all I'm thinking, right? So I close it. And I figure I'm going to get dumped that night. Well, when we met at the restaurant, I, I show up and she comes walking in. She goes, I'm in love with you. And I was floored, dude, because no one had ever told me that truthfully. And she'll, I'm in love with you. 
but I'm not going to date you unless you come to church with me. She didn't say you need to be a Christian. You need to accept Jesus. She didn't say that. But she knew I needed something that she couldn't provide. So in, in our faith, it's called bring the body of Christ around you. You know, she she needed six alarms for this fire that she was on. You know, she was only a, a, a single unit and stuff. So she invited me to church, man. And from there, I just it was a church where everyone loved me. Everyone was cool with me. The pastors, everyone were great. No judgmental. They weren't telling me I had to go be a Christian. They just taught what their faith was about, man. And. After that is when I mentioned the fire that I went to and when I got trapped in that fire and I thought it was all going to end, that's when it's just like the whole pie came together, dude. And it just made sense to me. And that's when, when my conversion happened. And that's my, uh, my faith journey of how I, I truly found it, found faith and how I found peace and comfort. And don't get me wrong. People are like, so being a Christian makes all better. I'm like, no, it sucks. Okay. There's days that I, still, <laughs> I still live in this fallen world full of broken people that we call it. And if you look at anyone who has become a Christian in the early church, it was a rough go. There were things called stonings and crucifixions, all this other stuff. So what I tell people on that is I just now have a place where I can leave it, bro, that, that works for me. That's my truth. When I have something rough, I can go and I now have a foundation to 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 take it and say, I can't deal with this more. I'm handing this off here. And then in return, I can actually read my Bible and find truth that will help me work through it, which also directs me to people, Christians and non-Christians alike to surround myself with and and find healthy ways to move forward. And that's why uh, it just works for me, man. Beautiful. In that journey, as you found Christianity, like, were there any moments where, because I mean, like you said, it's a very gradual process. Were there any moments where you kind of had like a, you, you were caught out? Like, no, not doubts, no, the opposite. Like you, you turned around and were like, ah, okay, well, there, I would have been crushed by this before. And now, you know, with this faith, uh, you know, I'm actually growing, not breaking apart. Yeah, it's it, what it has truly, James, is clarity. It's given me clarity of something I couldn't figure out. I'd always try to figure out, well, I now have this place where I can go and say, I have clarity of this is why this happened. I can see why. Or I can say, God hasn't shown me why he let me live through that. But because in my heart, I feel he's perfect. He wanted me to experience for some reason. And later he's going to reveal it to me. And I'm comfortable with that as opposed to just racking my brain, racking my brain, trying to figure everything out. You know what I mean? It's just, just a, a comfort zone to know that that he's bigger than me and he's got me handled and it's going to be good, you know? And so that's that's where looking back on things has really helped me. Well, another thing that's definitely a common denominator for people that have have gone through the darkness. I'm not saying they're, they're completely healed or anything, but they've come out of the crisis point. They're, they're definitely in the growth phase again. The altruistic element, which obviously, you know, the being Christ-like is definitely, you know, that philosophy. Once they're able to give back, once they're able to be, you know, a, a shining light for someone else, another group of people, whatever it is, that is also incredibly healing for the individual. Did you have that kind of after your, not necessarily the introduction, but after you started accepting Christ, did you have that kind of element in your growth? Yeah, especially and like you hit it in the growth because I'm unfinished work, man. And I'm not going to be good until the the day I cross over to heaven. It is a but. Yes, people will look at it and say, "Man, is that d- the peace you have? Is it true? Is it this? Is that?" And when I get to sit down and have a conversation with them, it makes it go, "Huh? Okay, yes, I will see people get comfort from it." 
or I will see them be convicted to ask me more questions, whether it's more questions of how can they grow past this area of their life or grow in their faith, one or the other and stuff. And I've, I've definitely seen good stuff happen there. But it's also like being a paramedic, which I know you are and I am. We also have to be cautious when we approach people because we have to do an assessment on them. And if I give a, a stroke victim so, some nitro or something else that they really don't need, you know, I could cause some major damage to them. Just like if I give a heart attack victim the wrong medicine, I can cause damage. So I, I like to assess people, see where they're at in their journey in life and pain and trauma and and kind of approach them in a holistic approach, meaning wholly surrounded around of my faith, plus what they're going through in this world, plus, you know, like you're talking sleep deprivation, nutrition. There's so much to do. I love to approach them. And I see growth out of people when I do that, man. I see changes. I see them get the aha moments sometimes. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned about filling the void with work at the beginning of the conversation. As you started healing, did you find yourself allowing yourself to be present, not kind of, you know, signing up for all the work and trying to stay busy all the time? Dude, I started realizing that, you know what, every lack of sleep, because in Oakland, we do a one-on, two-off, one-on, two-off schedule. So you go home, you're always tired. Then you get one night of sleep, and then the next night, you're already preparing to go back to work again, (laughs) you know? And so I started learning, I don't need to work as much. There's amazing things outside. Like for me, I love being in creation, being in outdoors and stuff. And so I started looking at that. So I stopped filling the void with, oh, I need more money. I need more of this. I started filling with, I need to be healthy. I need to treat my body better, you know, and, and which is also a, a worldly value and a Christian value. You know, it's very clear that that's what we need to do and stuff. And so, yeah, bro, once, once I did, I started feeling a lot better and I started turning away from chasing all that stuff that I thought would make me feel better. And I turned to what would really make me feel better. Beautiful. Yeah. Nature's, again, common denominator over and over again. Now, with sleep deprivation, something that is an, a, you know, a dead horse that I flog on a daily basis, <laughs> trying to drive that. You talked about a few things that would change the world. I think removal of drug prohibition is one and addressing sleep deprivation in all short shift workers. But, um, the mental health, you know, element is, is horrendous. And I think that the 56 hour work weeks are contributing to a lot of the suicides, but they're also contributing to a lot of the, the, uh, injuries that we see. I, I, as you know, had a, a near career ending back injury. Um, and I know that was something that factored into you transitioning out. So to tell me about that. And then also tell me about how the transition was for you leaving that tribe. Oh, dude. It, the day the doctor walked into my hospital room and said I couldn't be a firefighter anymore was literally the worst day of my entire life at the time. Post, it has become one of the greatest days of my life because I now get to look back at my 22 year career and use it to bless people, help people, you know, direct them to the help they need. But what my injury came from, we were in a warehouse fire and we were, it was nothing dramatic. We were leaving and I fell in a stupid hole and I broke my back when I fell in the hole. Well, I was able to get back to work and and start feeling better. Well, then we were at another fire and as I was running and I threw a ladder, I felt a pop and it was one of the discs in my back that they put in, came out, the hardware got broken and I didn't realize I had hip injury too. So I went back for surgeries, did all that. I really wanted to keep working, but you know, I'd spend a few days on, but then they'd kick me off. They back forth for a couple of years. 
And so finally, after my last surgery, they said I couldn't come back. But man, I tell you what, leaving the fire department, why it was so hard is because um, I idolized myself as a firefighter. That's who I was. If I wasn't a firefighter, how could I provide for my family? I was worthless. I couldn't help people anymore. And the depression I fell into there, James, sucked. It was almost like I was back into a depression prior to me uh, being a follower of Christ and stuff. So that's why I tell people, like, oh, yeah, Christians, we have depression. We have all that stuff. We go through struggles, too. But one thing since then that has been a blessing is, man, my body was able to heal itself better because I wasn't up all the time. My body was able to heal itself better because I wasn't going into toxic environments all the time. You know, I come from the generation and Oakland's changed up, but we didn't even start wearing turnout pants until I think 2008 or something. Really? And, oh, yeah, we, we, dude, we'd wool pants, wool pants, a coat, and that was it. And if you're on the roof, you never wore a bottle, dude. Forget that. You know, you just put your back to the bay and the wind would carry the smoke the other way. And so when you're punching through, you're taking face fulls of smoke. And when your bottle ran out, it, you know, obviously if you're in, in you had conditions that were so talking, you need a mask on, you're not going to survive if you take it off. Let's be real. But when you're co- you know, coughing and gagging, your eyes are burning, you didn't go back outside for a bottle after you knocked the fire. You just took your mask on and you started overhauling right there. We didn't have masks. We would see little crystals floating around the room and come to find out that was asbestos. You know, So not being in those environments anymore, my body started to heal and feel better and stuff. You know, So that's why I don't want to preach that I'm old school. You know, I tell the new young guys, man, encapsulate, keep that crap off your bodies, wear your mask, wear the overhaul mask, wear all this stuff that my generation made fun of because you need those things, you know. But to go back into it, yes, my body, my mind, my soul and everything got better. Do I miss it? Oh, I miss it so bad. I, I pray every day I could go back to work, but I can't. But I'm super happy where God has me now because I get to have conversations with you and other people on a daily basis. And it's freaking rad, dude, to help people in another way. No, that's beautiful. And I had the, the same exact thing. And it's crazy how how hard it is when you identify as a firefighter. And I, I volunteered for not even a year, a few months. And most of those months were doing the training to kind of get up to speed on all their certs that they wanted, you know, current again. But, you know, when it came to it, I was a glorified ride along. That was it. They had crews that were already staffed. You were an extra pair of hands. And, you know, as you know, the American Fire Service in 2020 or 2019, whatever it was then, you know, it's, it's 90% non-emergent, 10% you know, emergence. So not only are you riding along, you're taking blood pressures and strapping ankles for most of it. And you're like, yeah, maybe this isn't what I was envisioning. But I realized it was, it was my ego. It was like, I was already doing good things. I was doing the podcast, you know, that I knew was helping people, but I wanted to be the dude with the bunker gear. And it, it was a struggle to, to, to finally turn that in and go, I'm not that person anymore, you know, and I love it. I'm actually going to go help out in the Orlando fire conference this year. So I'm going to get to put it on. I'm going to get to help train a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, identifying solely with the profession that you do really does set you up for failure when you move out. You have to have that next chapter and understand that you are, again, it's that yin yang. The good part of you is going to make a difference and that, you know, what that looks like might be a firefighter, it might be a police officer, or it might be just a good person in the community. Right. Well, the way I kind of explain it now, because with me, you know, to throw it out there, the audience, yeah, I'm in ministry now. And so for me, I sit there and I look I'm like, all right, this pastor over here, he he went to eight years of schooling. Then he went into to seminary and did all this. 
Well, check it out, dude. My schooling was on the back of a fire engine, responding to people in need, showing up to situations and using my skills to try to make them better. And so I'm a high school dropout now who's blessed to be in the position where I am to help other people. So people are like, where did you go to school? And I'm like, yeah, the College of West Oakland, <laughs> you know, helping helping people in need. The, the college of being a, a beaten child in a rough past, that, that was my schooling, man. And that's where... I draw now to help other people and I'm not telling people not to go to school, go to school, get that PhD. If that's what the route you've truly been called, I just wasn't called to go that route, man. But we all end up at the same place where we can help others with the education we have and people like us, our education. I know, I know you're high, highly educated, but guys like me, I, I just come from an education of a different background and it works, man. You know, when we use it to bless others, bros, and that's what I like to do. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I was highly educated. I've just got a great student loan that I got to pay off. <laughs> Most of the actual real stuff I learned was from seminars and conversations with people that didn't cost me anything. So, <laughs> you know, I hear you. Yeah, that's where I'm at now. And so now I'm out, um, you know, being invited to different conferences around the United States and talking about PTSD. And it's good to have a, a faith based view too, because, like I say, man, Maybe there's Muslim firefighters out there that are struggling. It will be cool if someone in their their faith would help them along their way, which I'm sure they are. You know, well, for me, I go, man, there's a lot of Christian firefighters out there. So when we're at one of these things, come on over to me and let's talk over here, you know, and, and you can have this breakout room with me, you know, and, so, and it's just getting cool to to see. But then we all go back into the general population, realize we all have the same struggles, but it's cool to have the little breakout rooms, if you will, for people that have different needs, you know? Yeah, well, exactly. And I think that aligns closely with, you know, what I talk about a lot with the mental health in general. You know, there are some people equine therapy works for, canine therapy, EMDR, um, you know, M MDMA uh, led counseling. I mean, there's all these different things. And I know that, you know, obviously most fire departments have, you know, a pastor or someone attached to them. And that is a great outlet. Now, you know, there's people that that wouldn't work for. You know, this is, this is what the scripture says. Well, I don't, I don't relate to that. Okay, fine. But you have to have all those tools so the Christian, you know, firefighter can go or maybe the one that that's good, like you, that's going to be their, their aha moment in Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or whatever. But the more of those opportunities, the more of those outlets we have, the more chance there is of that crisis firefighter or even not in crisis that, that firefighter that, that that police officer finding the path of healing and that's what it's really all about no you nailed it bro i appreciate that dude on so many levels that's so true well speaking of storytelling so tell me about when you decided to write the book and you mentioned about the resistance so what was the pushback that you had and what basically empowered you to get it done oh well you know maybe i think you mentioned it somewhere too and some of the stuff i've seen the old imposter problem that we all have, right? <laughs> like, I feel like I'm an imposter at times because you have guys who've gone their full 30 years that are still there fighting fire, and then I'm not there anymore. Like, oh, so now you get to talk about it. And, and I feel bad about that, dude, because as you know, in the fire service, people either like you or they dislike you. It's really weird, right? I mean, people want to discredit you, discount you for whatever reason, because maybe I wasn't on board with a certain thing the union was doing. So I'm like, no. Well, then that kind of came up because I'm like, man, I don't I don't want the guys to think I'm trying to profit off of everything that I've done in my career. But that was a struggle. Then I had, man, if 
firefighters are going to hate my book because who cares about going on another person's journey or something like that. So I had like this whole thing that I felt like an imposter. People wouldn't like it. Well, then from my spiritual side, I felt the attacks of like every time I'm going to give a good sermon or go to a men's retreat or I, I, I preach at a church the day after is like when the attack set in, I feel the lowest low. So I have the highest high and the lowest lows. Well, with this book, it was the same thing, man. I, I felt the lowest lows coming in every time I'd write a chapter and I just wanted to turn away because I felt like I was in over my head. And then last thing I'll throw in, dude, I have a 10th grade education. I'm not the smartest guy on the face of the earth. And I felt like I couldn't produce something that would be readable and stuff. And that's why I had a writer help me out, help me arc the story. So I wrote all 60,000 words. He just came in and helped me bring in the descriptions better and the arcs and the storyline. So it flowed without changing the truth to it. And so all that came into play and I didn't want to do it. But how it came into fruition or how it came into me writing it was I was at men's retreats and people say, you need to tell your whole story. You don't need to just tell one story here and there. Put it in a book form all the way through and you're probably going to touch lives. And, you know, getting a publisher like I got to publish it, it's already started happening. It's continuing to happen. It's just it's been awesome. So those are the struggles I had. That's how it started and this is where I am now. And as you know, writing a book and doing, a, there's a lot more behind it. So when someone says, hey, I think I'm going to write a book, <laughs> you know, you know what they're, wow, you got some, you got a road ahead of you that's going to be be tough, but it's a good road to be on too. Absolutely. Now, is your uh, audiobook already out? Yeah, it's it's been out since September. So um, my publisher, they released the audiobook, the Kindle version and the hardcover all on the same date of September of 2020. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, because I, I, I finished mine. I submitted it, I think, t two weeks ago now. But I didn't realize when you self-publish through Amazon and go through it's ACX is the audio audio one. Um, it takes a lot longer than I thought. I was like, all right, I'm going to upload it. Maybe a couple of days it'll be out. No. <laughs> try, try like a month and a half. So I'm just sitting oh, here twiddling my thumbs at the moment. Oh, well, I can't. I can't wait. And you did it all in your voice too, correct? Yeah, but it's funny. I've I think I've talked about this before. So I was so blessed that Josh Brolin wrote the the forward. Well, Josh also agreed to read the forward for the audiobook. But then it hit me like, oh shit! One of the best voices in Hollywood is reading the forward. Then my squeaky ass English voice has to read the rest <laughs> of the book. <laughs> so the audience would probably, you know, it, it, it's one thing if it was just my voice, but now you've got Josh's as a gauge to hear how horrendous mine actually is. So <laughs> we'll see if anyone listens to it or not. Well, I got to throw this out there. If Josh ever listens to this, man, um, dude, I have the biggest man crush ever on that guy. So I just had to throw that out there. Not <laughs> just throwing it out there, man. He's one, of, he's one of my favorites, that's for sure. Yeah, he's just an awesome human being. He's actually off, uh, off all social media at the moment. He's shooting a movie and... Uh, detoxing from that so um, I think he's enjoying you know just focusing on his craft again which is brilliant so good all right well your book is The Rescuer a hero story of danger darkness and redemption so before we get into the closing questions where can people find your book you know the best place to find it would be rescuerbook.com is what my uh, publisher put together. You can also find it on Amazon. It's at Barnes and Nobles. Anywhere books are sold, you can find it there. But if you want to find a list of stores, rescuerbook.com is the best place to find it. 
Beautiful. You just give me an idea. So when you when you publish through Amazon, that's it. You can't go in Barnes and Noble. You can't be any of those. You're you know you're just exclusively to that. And right. I always see the authors that have got a publisher. They walk into a store. Yeah, my book was in here. I'm just I'm going to carry some copies of my book and just go to random bookshelf bookstores, put it on the <laughs> shelf, take a picture, and then leave again. <laughs> you're a man. Have at it, bro. <laughs> you, you know, well, when you walk into to Barnes and Nobles, just remember there's about 180,000 books sitting in there. So you want to have yours in a spot. Hopefully they'll see it is what i've learned <laughs> <laughs> no i'm gonna take it with me it's not staying there yeah, i'm just taking a picture <laughs> oh no hey, leave it right on the front table dude and you know see what happens <laughs> <laughs> all right well then let's transition to some closing questions so we talked about your book my first question is always is there a book that was written by someone else that you love to recommend it can be related to our discussion today or something completely unrelated you know what? When I read, believe it or not, it, the stuff I read is pretty boring because it is more in the, the theological learning because I'm kind of a Bible geek on that. So when I read, I like to get lost in a novel. And bro, the, the like all quiet on the Western front. I can't get enough of that book. Every time I read that thing, just the way it's written, how they could describe a character in, in six words and just crush it, you know, or a scene or emotion. Um, I'm telling you, dude, that's where I go to is the uh, the old classic, uh, the old classics. But that's my favorite. All Quiet on the Western Front. Beautiful. I haven't had that one recommended yet, so I'll put that on my list, too. Thank you. Yeah. All right. What about a movie? You know, dude. I'm two ways. I within the first four minutes, I can tell you if I'm either going to enjoy a movie or not. And it's got to It's got to get me right away. So for comedy, come on, man, we got to go hangover. OK, <laughs> that's that's just such a well-written comedy hangover. And when it comes to any other type of movie, gosh, man. Um, oh, I don't know, dude. I, I don't watch a whole lot of television or movies. So I, I think I'll stick with an old comedy. The, the hangovers. Brilliant. And have you yeah. watched any documentaries that struck you? You know, I have watched documentaries and as weird as it is, I like seeing documentaries of getting into the minds of serial killers, dude. Like, you know, watching watching um some of the old Manson stuff and how his people about how these people controlled other people, or even like Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, that latest one that came out, just to to, to just look into the mind of evilness just fascinates me. But I stay protected too, you know, and stuff because it's it's a it's a crazy area to be. But yeah, those documentaries of you know that stuff kind of catches my interest too. Yeah, that nice stalker A was was done so incredibly well. But B, I always find it interesting. You know, they don't tend to focus on it deeply. But when you start looking at some of these, you know, criminally insane men and women, and look at their early childhood, and again. You know, hurt, hurt people, hurt people. And it goes back to the beginning of our conversation. We have a responsibility to stop the cycle of violence. And, you know, good parenting and good mentorship is how we do it. Oh, I agree. And, you know, we, I've walked into evil scenes that I, I can't even write about because they were so horrific of what I witnessed, you know, and stuff. And so to, to try to figure out, like, why, why did someone do that? So that's why I'm sometimes drawn to those documentaries just to kind of look into those eyes and see, see what's up. Absolutely. All right. Well, next question. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, have you had Brendan on yet? Was yes. Brendan, yeah, but, but we're supposed to be doing it again because last time it, it was amazing. But it was with uh, Patrick McCarty as well. But it was on the Only the Brave kind of media tour. So it was a little bit shorter. He obviously, I think he was still really struggling even then. So with his um, you know, facility now and the work that he's doing, I think it would be a great second interview. 
Oh, yeah, no, um, Brendan is a solid guy. And um, obviously, I love your podcast because you just touch communities of all sides. But there is one, if you're ever, ever interested in a pastor with such a cool view, his name is Daniel Fusco, F-U-S-C-O. He's a mentor of mine and a guy that I really look up to and stuff and someone I think you would uh, totally enjoy talking to. So I'm just throwing his name out as a total uh, side side option there for you. Beautiful. Thank you. No, as you know, I'm always looking for for anyone, you know, any, any good yeah. human beings. That's the only only uh, stipulation. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Well, then uh, next question. What do you do to decompress? You know, for me, there's so many different ways. But number one is quiet dogs. I love my dogs and I like them because I rescue pit bulls and they're as messed up as me, but so full of love. So spending time with my dogs, my family, dude, just decompressing by being a cool dad of going out and exercising with the kids and doing little CrossFit workouts with them and jujitsu. And then when I need true decompression, it's me, my Bible and prayer time, you know, so I have, I have multiple different layers there based on what what's going on at the current time in my life. Brilliant. All right. Well, then if people want to learn more about you, reach out to you online, social media, where are the best places? Um, well, I dumped Twitter because it was just too toxic on all sides, just so I'm clear on that. <laughs> but, but um, you know, Facebook, you can find me. It's at Gracefully Rescued on Facebook. And I do have a website that I don't use a whole lot, but it's jasonsautel.com. And um, in the back of my book, there's also an email you can get a hold of me at too and stuff. So um, those, those are the three ways. But Gracefully Rescued is my Facebook handle, uh, jasonsautel.com. And then also my email is in the back of the book. And you're welcome to throw me an email and I will respond. Beautiful. Well, Jason, I want to say thank you. I'm so glad that you reached out. I absolutely loved your book. I mean, but I think the most important thing is that as with many people that come on this podcast, that you had the courage to tell your story, to be vulnerable, to be transparent. Because one thing I've learned about this is PowerPoint presentations don't save lives. Storytelling saves lives. And when people hear themselves in a story that's been told, that to me is what breaks down the stigma and, and enables people to have the strength to reach out. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, I appreciate it, man. And I appreciate you on so many levels too. I appreciate your podcast and just everything that you're doing for the community as a whole, man. Totally appreciate you. 